Informant podcasts should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Hello, this is Tamika Walters, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of Burn Foreman. Women in Leadership is the theme of our 2021 Women's History Month celebration. Each week, we've been learning about women leaders, including those at Burn Foreman, throughout the United States, and abroad. This week, we're focusing on women in antiquity who have shown extraordinary leadership ability, some of whom have led movements, armies, and nations. With me today is Burren Foreman partner, Ed Snow. Ed practices in the Financial Institutions Group and works out of the Atlanta office. Ed co-chairs the board of Emory University's Michael C. Carlos Museum, which houses the largest ancient art collection in the Southeast. So Ed, through your connection with the Carlos Museum and your own research, you have quite the insight into ancient cultures and the role of women in those cultures. In fact, you offer a CLE on the role of women as lawyers in antiquity. So I wanted to invite you here today to share a few tidbits on what you've learned about women in the legal profession during ancient times. Welcome. Thank you, Tamika. I'm excited to share what I've learned. Excellent. Now, much of your research zeroes in on women who may have functioned as ancient scribes. What exactly was the role of an ancient scribe? That's a great question. Uh, before I get to that, let me also suggest that when people think about lawyers and the history of lawyers, most people consider the history of the law and its practitioners in the United States or the United Kingdom to have started in ancient Rome with the ancient Roman jurists, such as Gaius, who lived about 150 AD or CE. Some, perhaps litigators, would like to push that back to about 350 BC or BCE to the Greek orators like Demosthenes. But if you study history and especially the history of the law, it's clear that the law is much more ancient than that and that there were people involved in writing about the law. And those were ancient scribes. So the role of the ancient scribe was many things. They did some accounting work. They wrote speeches. They wrote narratives and histories. They wrote myths. But they also wrote legal documents, such as legal codes, the Code of Hammurabi or the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, were legal writings that these scribes wrote and collected. They wrote treaties, and they also wrote contracts. And many people are surprised to hear this. They wrote loan agreements, pledge agreements, marriage contracts real estate purchase agreements, lease contracts, and even adoption contracts. And in fact, many legal historians, when they look at some of these ancient documents written on papyrus or clay tablets, are surprised to see that 4,000 years ago, a loan document could be negotiated between parties and transferred and then collected by another party, not necessarily the original payee on that loan agreement. And these ancient scribes they studied they shared information with each other. They borrowed from each other, just like lawyers do today. I might borrow something from a lawyer in New York from a transaction I worked on last year for a new transaction. They represented parties in the temple and in the palace, and often with wealthy individuals at their estate. And there is evidence for scribes working in worker colonies where, say, a palace was being built. And these scribes also 
performed legal functions for those workers. It's very surprising to me that we really don't talk about that or consider them lawyers. And it's because they had multiple functions, but they were in every sense very similar to the transaction attorneys we have today. That's truly fascinating and and sounds like they would need to have been quite educated as well. Uh, For the history buffs, what geographic region and time period has your research focused on? The time period is the 2000 years approximately before these Greek orators. So that's about 2300 to 300 BCE or BC. And the areas where these scribes practiced or did their work was in the area we call today the Middle East, uh, which scholars call the ancient Near East. And that's ancient Egypt, ancient Iraq, which scholars call Mesopotamia, and ancient Canaan, which sometimes goes by the name of Palestine. And my focus has been primarily in this region, in Canaan and Palestine, in ancient Israel, which is a subset of that culture. This is obviously of historical significance because most people see the birth of civilization in these cultures together for that emergence of civilization. In addition to historical significance, it also has a lot of significance for us today in discussing multicultural influences in civilization. Egypt, for instance, was not just part of the ancient Mediterranean civilizations, and it was not just a part of the ancient Near East or Middle East, but it's hard to believe people forget that ancient Egypt was an African civilization, and most of its activities in antiquity involved its African neighbors more so than Canaan or Mesopotamia. So all of this has interested me greatly, and I found that much of what we do today was influenced by what they did back then in this area of the world. And in fact, some of the scholars who study this period and the legal history and the practitioners of the law talk about a common law, much like we might talk about the common law history of the U.S. and the U.K., and that they borrowed from each other, used similar forms and practices, and recognized each other's ideas and concepts about what the law is. What evidence do we have that women sometimes functioned as scribes? This is a great question. And you might ask that question today, if you were to to look at a stack of legal documents, what evidence do we have for a man or a woman having, having written this loan agreement? You could look at some metadata or look at some correspondence, but frequently the production of legal documents does not name the author unless they're a witness to a document, which sometimes happens today and happened in antiquity. But we're very fortunate because we have textual evidence names of individuals who were women, as well as narratives that tell us stories about people who were scribes or who could write. And when you go back this far in history, before the invention of the alphabet, the people who could write, who were literate, in order to gain that skill, they went to extensive scribal schooling and studied everything that a scribe would study, not just how to write or read, But their curriculum included reading livers or other types of oracles for understanding disease, which is a precursor to modern medical science. They studied legal contracts. They worked on forms and studied them. We have documents from students who studied the law, and some of them bragged about their ability to write all of the different types of legal contract. So we know that anyone who could write essentially went to law school, even if they may not have been a lawyer and they performed other functions. I like to call them lawyer scribes 
when they acted as, as lawyers do today. If you look at Mesopotamia, we have a rich supply of data there from these clay tablets that have survived. And they wrote on clay, it was their handy writing material. We have over 25 names of women who were scribes in ancient Mesopotamia. And they wrote for their clients in the temple and in the palace where women resided. And in fact, one of the names of these women in Hedwana, who was the daughter of Sargon the Great, she is acclaimed as the first named author in history of writing a literary work. So we have a lot of evidence in Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, for women who performed legal functions as scribes. If you go to Canaan, we have some evidence there too. And I've primarily used the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as the source, the very ready source. In the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, there's a woman named Huldah, who is referred to as a female prophet. She could also read and write because we know at the time of the reign of King Josiah, around 600 BCE, there was a book found in the temple and it was taken to her to read and to authenticate. And that book, many scholars believe that was found in the temple, was some early version of the book of Deuteronomy that's included in the Bible itself. So Holda was someone who had training as a scribe, which no doubt would have included legal documentation. She's mentioned in the Old Testament. And in fact, later Jewish tradition says that she was the founder of a scribal school. And there's a wall named after her in Jerusalem around the temple the wall of Huldah. Another interesting female scribe in the Old Testament goes by the name of female scribe. And this is a little bit unusual because the reference to female scribe in the book of Ezra, chapter two, has been mistranslated as a name rather than female scribe. And oddly enough, it's given to a man. And for the longest time, people thought that was a man's name listed in a list of officials who served under King Solomon, and the name is Hasophereth, which in Hebrew means literally the female scribe. And she and her family are recognized as either a scribal family or a scribal guild for almost 500 years. So certainly there is evidence in Canaan by way of the Hebrew Bible for women who had scribal skills and studied legal documents. By the time we, we look at Egypt towards the southwest of this region, there are women who appear to have been literate and who have studied with scribes, but the evidence here is disappointing. It appears that women here, while many of them were literate, mostly elite women who had been queens or princesses, many of them possessed scribal palettes as a part of their treasured objects that they had in their lifetime and that were included in their graves. It's hard to imagine that women practiced as scribes and wrote documents for clients. So the evidence, that's the positive textual evidence. There's also negative textual evidence, and this is somewhat misogynistic and hard to read, but it's also evidence. There are scribes, males, who said harsh or snide things about women and their writing skills, which to me indicates that you wouldn't say that about someone unless they were also a scribe. So that evidence also exists. So that's the documentary evidence for women performing functions as lawyer scribes. Thank you for sharing that. I would love for you to tell us about the tradition of worshiping female deities who were themselves scribes. To me, this is one of the most interesting parts of this research is all three of these cultures had female patron saints, if you will, or patron deities who were women who were scribes. 
And that might surprise some people for Israel, but we'll leave that one for last to talk about. But in Mesopotamia, for instance, ancient Iraq, there is ample evidence in mythological narratives and in artistic depictions of Nisaba and a few other goddesses who performed scribal functions. And in fact, the students in scribal school would often invoke Nisaba as their patron deity to assist them in writing their documents in a professional manner. They would invoke her blessing. There are also male deities who were patron deities to scribes, and it appears that they overtook some of their earlier female counterparts, or the female counterpart later became the consort or the wife of the male deity that was a patron deity for scribes. In Egypt, there is the scribal deity Seshat, which means female scribe. And there are numerous depictions of her and other female deities who were scribes. And the artistic evidence there is overwhelming. But again, there's no artistic evidence for women acting as scribes, but there is a lot of evidence both in sculpture and in depictions and artistic texts of men acting as scribes. So even though Egypt recognized that a woman could be a scribe, especially a deity, because of their bureaucratic setup, they did not have women acting as bureaucrats in the state, with the exception of Queen Hatshepsut and other queens from time to time. So there is a lot of mythological evidence that indicates that at least the men who were scribes looked to women who were deities as their scribal patron saints. Now, you said you wanted to save the example from Israel until last. Did you want to touch on that now? Yes, and thanks for reminding me. As people know who've read the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, the prophets would frequently tell people not to worship female deities or any other deity other than the God of Israel. But the scribes who wrote the Bible and who wrote the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is thought, of course, going to church or synagogue, you you think that's a book for everyone, and and it certainly is, full of wisdom that's lasted throughout the ages. But most scholars believe the book of Proverbs was written by scribes for scribes primarily. And in many ways, it functioned like a professional code of conduct. It was the things that scribes should do and how they should act. And in the book of Proverbs, there is a person called Lady Wisdom, and she is the personification of wisdom. And in later Jewish thought, wisdom was a being that coexisted with God before the world was made. And they refer to Lady Wisdom as if she might as well have been a goddess, and she is their patron saint. And in fact, they frequently use terms and images to describe her that were terms and images used by rank-and-file Israelites who actually did not follow prophetic advice and worshipped female deities such as Asherah. So the Israelite scribes did have Lady Wisdom as their patron saint or demigoddess, if you will. So it seems like they they wanted to be like their neighbors in Egypt and Mesopotamia and also have a, a patron saint who was a woman, but they weren't able to fully use her as a an outright deity. That is fascinating and ironic at once. But let's pivot a little bit. There is a saying that there's nothing new under the sun, um, also from the Hebrew Bible. What were some of the unique challenges facing women scribes? Tamika, this is the part that, that really struck me when I was researching this, is that many of the things that we read about today, such as in the book Lean In, for instance, or in other literature, Some of the same challenges uh, persist today. 
which may be something to be understood from human, human nature, but it's a, it's a challenge that we need to face and overcome. We talked about these disparaging remarks that are misogynistic and hard to read. Those certainly uh, persisted. Balancing childcare, for instance, with your job was a challenge then, as it is for many people today. I'm going to use an example from a later period because it's such a great example. From the medieval period, uh, there was a Jewish family in Yemen, and they were scribes, and they produced documents, and they copied the Torah for clients, for instance. And Miriam, who was a member of this family, probably copied maybe 400 to 500 copies of, of the Torah. And in one of the Torah manuscripts that she delivered to a client, she wrote her name, and she wrote this annotation. Please be indulgent of the shortcomings of this volume. I copied it while I was nursing my baby. So that is a reminder of the balancing act that women have had to face. And hopefully we'll be getting 50-50 support um, in the future. There's another incident where a female scribe in ancient Mesopotamia wrote a document for a client. And she said, disregard, this is from a mere woman who has written and submitted this to you which sounds like the phenomenon some people talk about where women in business may apologize too much. And I don't know if it's because women apologize too much or men don't apologize enough, uh, but that's certainly something that, that struck a chord with me, that this was a completely unnecessary and self-deprecating statement for her to have made. So that's something that is timely as well. And then finally, uh, the woman Huldah, who is the prophetess in the Hebrew Bible, she's a very significant figure. She's the first person in Judeo-Christian tradition to have authenticated a book of scripture. The book that was found in the temple is the book of Deuteronomy. And that book is found in the Bible itself. And yet the details of her life are better known to us through her husband. The Hebrew Bible gives us almost no biographical information about her. But there is virtually a resume about her husband and all the things that he did and who he was related to. So we know more about her through her husband than through her non-existent and neglected biography. Now, Jewish tradition has picked up some of the slack there and given us other details, but those details may have been created later, but they certainly were not included uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so on one hand, we've come a long way since 300 BCE. In the United States, women account for half of law school graduates and more than a quarter of federal judges. One third of Fortune 500 general counsel are women. And of course, we have women serving on the United States Supreme Court. At Byrne Foreman, we're excited that women actually comprise a majority of our associates at over 50%. And so we've definitely made some progress in terms of opening the legal field to women. But some of the issues still remain, which you've just highlighted, you know, the continuing struggle to find work-life balance for lawyers who are mothers and equitable compensation or promotions of women as compared to men. So now, um, given your research and your historical lens, what would you say upon reflection that some women today are experiencing the same issues that challenged women scribes some 2,000 years ago? Tamika, that's a great question, and I welcome the opportunity to chat about this for a second. I'd like to start off with an anecdote. A few years ago, I was traveling to Knoxville, which is my hometown, and I was driving through a smaller Georgia town on the way, and I was driving through the, the town itself, and there were a bunch of law offices throughout the town. 
And one of them struck me while I was driving by the mailbox, this house that had been converted into a, a lawyer's office. There was a bronze statue of Lady Justice standing outside next to the mailbox and, and the sign for the law firm right next to her. She was blindfolded, of course, holding the scales of justice in one hand and a sword in the other hand. I was struck by the thought that the familiar female deity or personification of wisdom of ancient scribes had somehow either survived to the present day or had been reincarnated through Lady Justice, that in many ways, she's the same thing as Nisaba or Seshat were for ancient Mesopotamians or Egyptians, the scribes, that is. And the scales uh, reminded me, too, that we still have a very long way to go for gender equality in our profession. She also seemed to symbolize to me that our past is still with us, the problems that ancient female lawyer scribes faced are still here, but that she also invites us, especially our male colleagues in the legal profession, to listen, learn, and support our female colleagues as they continue to seek equal footing and opportunities as fellow practitioners in our law firms and at the bar. Well, thank you, Ed, so much for sharing everything that you did today. I'm certainly grateful to have read about your research, and I hope that a lot of people get to listen to this podcast. I hope some of our clients might, you know, maybe bring you in to, to do this CLE so they can see some of the images that you've uncovered and some of the artifacts that you include in that CLE. But this, this is just fascinating information, and I really appreciate you spending the time with me today and making this podcast. Tamika, it's my pleasure. Thank you.